0: even in our sector, even the best and brightest and most progressive were hamstrung within their institutions from naming the police as a perpetrator of violence, of being able to say that people took to the streets during a pandemic, not because we needed more Black entrepreneurs or Black coders or Black CEOs. It's because the police were targeting and
1: killing Black people.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Untied Knots. I'm your host, Nikhil Rogovira.
1: And I'm Erica Licht.
2: In these last few episodes, we feature content from the recent Ira convening, or the Truth and Transformation Conference. And today, we're sharing another panel from the day, Equity Takes Time, Commitment, and Disruption.
1: And like the others, the hour-long discussion featured some of the most critical voices thinking about and acting on racial justice. It's the long haul, including discomfort, interruptions,
2: and disruptions. And we'll hear perspectives from philanthropy, civil rights organizing and policy, both in the US and the UK, as well as ways in which the panels reflect on what risks and innovation looks like in pursuit of really sustainable and impactful change.
1: So Retina Gill, research assistant at IREP, will kick off the panel with introductions, which you'll hear in a minute. And as always, panelists' views are their own. Enjoy.
3: Welcome to our final panel of the day. My name is Ratna Gill, and I have the privilege of introducing this panel, where we'll be discussing the commitment that's required to create sustainable anti-racist change in organizations. Thank you so much to all of our attendees who have been so lively and energized in the chat. Please keep that going. We really appreciate it. And now I'll introduce Carmen Rojas. Of the, who's the president and CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation and the former CEO and co founder of the Workers Lab. Welcome, Carmen.
4: Thank we're you also,
3: big, thanks for having me. We're also joined by John C. Yang, who's the president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, and who served in the Obama administration as senior advisor for trade and strategic initiatives at the US Department of Commerce. Welcome, John.
5: Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone.
3: We're also lucky to have Halima Begum with us, who's the chief executive of the Runnymede Trust, which is the United Kingdom's leading racial equity and civil rights think tank. Welcome, Halima.
6: Good afternoon, everyone.
3: And we are joined by Eric Ward, who is the executive director of the Western State Center and a senior fellow with the Southern Poverty Law Center and Race Forward. Um, He's also working on a forthcoming documentary about whiteness and race in America. So keep an eye out for that and welcome, Eric. And this panel will be moderated by Mary McNeil, who's a PhD candidate in the American Studies program at Harvard University. And her work is interested in space, place, and Black and Indigenous social movements. So with that, I'll pass it to Mary. Thank you.
7: Thank you so much, Retna. And thank you, Carmen, John, Eric, and Halima for um, being with us today. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you all. Um, And we have about 45 minutes to have a conversation before we open it up to the audience for Q&A. So uh, maybe I'll I'll start by uh, fielding a question to someone in particular. Um, uh, Why don't I start with Carmen, uh, and then folks, feel free to kind of jump in wherever you you want to, wherever the spirit moves you to. Uh, We're hoping to have a pretty organic conversation today. Um, But uh, the first question that I have um, is a a question about the sort of redistribution of power and resources. what are the types of uh, work that you're seeing um, that are that are what, what is the work that you think needs to be done in terms of the redistribution of power and resources uh, to achieve like achieve broad goals of equity?
0: Yeah, um, so much work. So first and foremost, thanks everybody. I'm really so excited to have this, an afternoon uh, with this amazing group of people uh, exploring these issues. Um, I think a lot of work needs to happen. We are experiencing the greatest economic inequality, the greatest racial wealth inequality, the greatest political um, participation disparities that have been uh, deeply embedded in our structural experience in the United States, right? Like these are not accidents, but they're clear features of what the making of U.S. democracy and the U.S of what racialized capitalism looks like in the US. And so I think we have a long ways to go. I'll speak from sort of philanthropy's perspective. One of the things that I have been thinking about, I'm pretty new to this job. I feel like I have a couple, like two or three more months of being able to say I'm a new person in this job, Um, but pretty new to this job. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which philanthropy can often confuse um, representation for actual uh, redistribution. And so there's a real desire to have more people of color on boards, more people of color in leadership positions, more people of color, in the philanthropic sector, but without the same sort of weighted commitment to making sure that those people that we're bringing into these positions are actually aligned and committed to a racial justice agenda. And it's like the icky conversation that I think is the necessary conversation that we have to have in this moment, that there are ideologies out in the world and people ascribe to, and overwhelmingly neoliberalism has informed how we think about race and leadership in this country. As somebody who is actually more committed to a left uh, approach to political power, a left approach to economic power, what that has done, it's left us as a field with really like a say-do gap. Like We talk a lot about race, but the lives of people of color aren't actually getting better. We talk a lot about race, but political participation or the vehicles through which people of color participate and our political system are actually being broken down or continuing to be atrophied. And so I think we, as a leader in philanthropy, um, as a sector need to engage with this difference, like the key difference for me of like representation versus actual redistributing power and position in the sector. what
5: do you think about Yeah, Sure, let me jump in here. Let me let everyone know. So I work at a civil rights organization. Our organization focuses on immigration, on voting, on uh, anti-Asian hate, discrimination, educational equity. So when I think about the redistribution of power, I also think about the systems in place, right? The policies in place, that really keep our communities. And when I say our communities, I really am talking about the BIPOC community, the communities of color, keep our communities from accessing that power, right? Uh, And and so sort of for me, it's about how do we create, how do we create those systems? You know, if you think about voting as an example, let's be clear, you know, what we're trying to do, it isn't about politics. Some people, frankly, the people on the right these days wanna say that this is all about politics and trying to get more Democrats into power. For me, that's not what it is. It's about making sure everybody has a voice. And the reality is that for too long, communities of color have not had that voice. And so when we're talking about voting, it's trying to create that system, you know, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act right now, that will allow everyone to have that voice. That's the same thing when you talk about census. You know, we had a census last year in 2020. It's a sort of, in some ways, it's an arcane thing that some people think of because it's in the Constitution. It's like, well, what's the purpose of counting everyone? Well, the purpose of counting everyone is the distribution of resources. Literally, about 1.6 trillion dollars of federal resources are allocated based on census data. And so, if we don't get counted right, and again, it's our communities of color. That we don't get those resources, right? So if you're talking about equitable distribution of resources, that's what's important. And what we saw in the census, and we're still trying to unravel the data, but we are pretty confident in saying that communities of color, again, were undercounted, undercounted at a significant rate. You know, the same thing applies to whether we talk about education equity, immigration, or the one that I put in the field of civil and human rights. You know, a lot of people talk about immigration as well. You know, people should come here the right way should come here legally uh and so so for the people that are you know undocumented immigrants well you know they should get in line well the reality is who is it that makes the line who is it that decides who gets to come in well it's the people in power and historically that has always discriminated against certain groups you know if you want to talk about people coming here legally let's be honest you know back when in, for Ellis Island in the late 1800s early 1900s when there were european settlers coming in they were not coming in here in a legal manner, but it didn't matter. At that point, it didn't matter because we wanted more immigrants. So when we talk about that, it's, I think it's important to understand these systems that are in place. I agree with what you're saying, Carmen. There's these systems in place. Uh, the other thing I would talk about, and we could maybe come back to this because I don't want to hog the mic, so to speak, is just thinking about also in the corporate America, right? Where are we right now? What is the role that they have to play? Because government can't be the entire solution. You know, some corporations are starting to make efforts. Some are uneven. Some are better than others. We need to have candid conversations about what they can be doing better, what they're doing right. Last thing I would say I really appreciate about the title of this is when we talk about equitable distribution power, equity. You know, I think sometimes we get into a question about whether we want equality. I think the word equity is good because you uh, look speaking as a uh, east asian american male i recognize that i enjoy certain privileges right so if i'm saying that we should be all treated equally that's not right because the reality is different communities have suffered in different ways and so what we want is equitable treatment that we have you know, that we have in our uh, our society you know i'm not saying that i should have certain privileges you know what what we are all saying is that we should have that that portion that is proportioned to sort of our place in society.
7: Um, Sort of thinking about, uh, John, what you just said, and Carmen, what you said, uh, we're talking about, I'm hearing this idea of uh, redistribution versus representation um, in sort of two different levels, right? So we're thinking about sort of the structural as, as as John is sort of alluding to, right? And maybe the more sort of interpersonal or within a particular organization, as Carmen was kind of talking about within the philanthropic world. Um, a question that I have is um, what are the relationships between the two, right? Uh, how does sort of working towards uh, the redistribution of power and perhaps perhaps not just a long sort of uh, identitarian or 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 sort of uh representative lines, as Carmen kind of alluded to that being a problem. Um, but how, how, how might we think about the equitable, uh, distribution or redistribution of power and resources within our organizations, within our institutions, um, as relating to this broader sort of structural goal as John was alluding to?
4: Yeah. I mean, uh, this is Eric Ward of, of Western State Center. I think, uh, I'm going to be I haven't been provocative today, so uh, I'm, I'm going to try to be a little provocative uh, right now. Uh, I think the interrelationship between those two is one of the critical questions right now. And, you know, I'll I'll, I'll put it this way to folks. Uh, uh, you know, uh, look, don't don't go literalist on me. Right. I, I'm just going to try to open up some space here and suggest something. The, the actual argument over whether we should be a multiracial society is, uh, uh, is actually won for the most part that the racial justice movement has won. How do I know we've won this, right? Because I can actually even look into the social movements that oppose multiracialism, right? Uh, I can look at the white nationalist movement. We can look at the Proud Boys and alt-right. We can look at the Christian nationalist social movement in this country. We can look at some of the uh, most significant oppositions to multiracialism in this country and see that they are also committed to building multiracial leadership or at least in the sense of presence, right? Within those movements. They also have come to understand, right? That uh, uh, the idea of a diverse America right, is a argument that is, that is long over. And the debate right now is what do we do with a diverse America? And that's why systems become uh, critically important, right? If we stop merely at the presence of people of color, right, within institutions, within particularly uh, boards, right, and, and systems of, of governance, uh, we begin to lean into a conversation of tokenism, right, rather than the transformation of a society, right, that has been invented off of inequality. So I, I think we're in a moment right now where the question of diversity is is actually uh, a, a rhetorical debate in this country. The question now is how do we begin to practice diversity? How do we begin to practice? And the practice comes in the form of equity. But, but here's the, the secret here, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. I think that conversation around equity is much more complicated and, and nuanced than this society will uh, uh, allow for. And that is why the shifting of leadership structures uh, becomes so important in this moment. And I'm not up I'm not here, Carmen, I, I promise, I, I'm not going to uh, sit up here and, and praise you for the entire panel just a little bit of it, right? But I I think of uh, an example of this, right? I come out of philanthropy. I'm currently the board of of the Proteus Fund, right? A phenomenal uh, foundation, diverse governorship, right? Many of us have been in and outside of philanthropy, perhaps some who are listening here. But, you know, I think the shift in leadership that is not just present, but actually has agency has quick and tangible outcomes. And so I look at the work of like Carmen, I look at folks like Crystal Haling from Libra, Lorraine Ramirez from Funders for Justice, and they came with a very simple proposition uh, into the world of philanthropy. They actually argued that equity was not as complicated as we were all making out. That if we brought forward leadership, right, and gave them agency, not just presence, right, but agency within those institutions, and that these were leaders who were connected and felt accountable right, to the most marginalized in our communities, that institutions would begin to change and transform and become stronger uh, fairly quickly. And I think over the last uh, couple of years, we can see that within philanthropy. And so I think philanthropy becomes a very interesting case study in this moment of transformational change, right? Not just for philanthropy, but in terms of the way we apply governance. Because at the end of the day, look, the goal is to ensure that everyone, right, in this country can live, love, worship, right, and work free from fear and bigotry. That they get to embrace the opportunity and self-actualize their lives and and the lives of their communities. That doesn't happen just from protest, though it is important. It doesn't happen just from litigation, though that is also critical. At the end of the day, it, it comes from governance and has marginalized communities who have perpetually been kept out of institutions of governance. The only way we can begin to learn, right, is, is to practice. But the only way we can practice is to open up space. But we have a burden because of systemic racism and also systemic uh, sexism in our society and, and class bias. The the burden is is that we don't get 30 years to practice, sadly. Unfair, but we don't. What we get, right, is the chance to practice and to show immediate, tangible results. And that's why I think the conversation around what is happening inside of philanthropy right now becomes such a critical one. It's one of the case studies where we really can unpack and look at these questions and understand the challenges and what has Probably wasn't that provocative.
0: No, like threw in a compliment in there, so it's like so distracting. The 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 provocation really like <laughs> you brought down the heat with a little bit of like hugging. <laughs> but,
4: but Carmen, it oh I know. See, look at me now. About that a question, but but there has I mean there have been real challenges over the last right. There have been real advances over the last year. But, but is it accurate to say, like, it we it almost feels like there is kind of a, a backlash, right, or a recoiling to some of those advances uh, at, that have been made? Is, is that accurate? And oh, how do we
0: absolutely. apply to those? I mean, this goes to, like, John's question about the corporate sector. Like, if we just took a moment in time, which is the murder of George Floyd and the 60 days after. And every single private sector, philanthropic, rich person in this country came out with a commitment to Black people. And what happened, what like 12 months in, we know is that either dollars weren't delivered. So people were like $1 billion. And they were actually like $1 billion to pay my company to help you Black people set up businesses. The second thing is that people even in our sector, even the best and brightest and most progressive were hamstrung within their institutions from naming the police as a perpetrator of violence, of being able to say that people took to the streets during a pandemic, not because we needed more Black entrepreneurs or Black coders or Black CEOs. It's because the police were targeting and killing Black people. And so I feel like um, one of my, I'm, it like warms my heart, your hope for us. And I do believe that the philanthropic sector is like, um can be a leading edge of both systemic and organizational reform, but it actually um uh requires a commitment from the top to the bottom of institutions, a belief that something else is possible and that we can actually see that and not like a, a recoil. I do think like I have In the first six, I started in June of 2020. The first six months I was invited to 100 panels on anti-racism. And now I'm invited to 100 uh, panels about how do I get along with my right-wing colleagues uh, in philanthropy. And so there's like a really, and I think that you all do like a really interesting like um, matrix dance around it. I don't think it's my job to do that dance. Um, because there's too many people in our sector doing that da- or that need to do that dance right now. Sorry, Mary. Oh no, no, no. I think that
7: this is a this is a great conversation. Um, and I think that this is really thinking about the thinking back to the title of this panel, right? Uh, it's thinking about a sort of uh, a long arc, right? And that there are advances and that there are pushbacks. So, you know, it it, it it's a process. Um one of the questions that I sort of had. Um, and maybe I'll start with Halima this time. Um, leading from this conversation, right? Uh, and I'm I'm really thinking about something that that um, that Eric said in particular about uh, sort of intra organizational dynamics and having to give um, you know uh, executive directors say uh, the power to actually <laughs> do the things that they want to do. Um, I have a question about. Uh, what that sort of looked like in your respective organizations. Halima, you're in this amazing sort of think tank that, you know, I was looking over all of your reports, touching at so many different facets of uh, BIPOC life in the UK, uh, particularly in, in London and urban areas. Um, how, how are uh, has sort of diversification of um, researchers and board members uh, been something that you have been contending with, been having to contend with? Um, Everyone else's organizations are these things that have shifted a lot within the past, you know, 18 months. Uh, And if so, how so? Thank you,
6: Mary. And really great to be here with U.S. colleagues. I feel um, like I'm the U.K. sole representative, but I can't really speak about all of that experience in the U.K. But I'll try and give you a flavor of how some of these conversations are panning out. Um, Because I'm not allowed out unless I say this. Please follow us on Twitter. Alima underscore Begum, we're very democratic at work. Um, Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, I'm just going to start with the comment that I think, um, Carmen, it, it wasn't a lack of diversity that led to the murder of George Floyd. Actually, the streets of US and London streets are quite diverse. It wasn't that that led to the murder of George Floyd. There was something systemic and institutional And therefore, I think that question about diversity and its link to representation and therefore what is the redistribution of power connection comes to play, right? Because you can have all the diversity and representation in the world. But if it doesn't bring about a change in reality to transform people's lives, then it's diversity for diversity's sake, it's representation for representation's sake. And, you know, quite literally across the pond and here, I'd say that we have, certainly in political uh, structures, quite a lot of diverse representation. But if we don't follow that with some level of power redistribution and resource transfer, then then, then something's not sticking What we've seen in the last 18 months, certainly, is people's perception of um, what diversity is and isn't and its limitations come to bear. Because I think most people thought, well, you know, if you have more diversity, more representation, we'll have less uh, black people being killed in the streets or stop and search and so on. Or if you have more diversity, uh, something like COVID is in theory indiscriminate. Everybody's affected in the same way, but guess what? Certain minorities were disproportionately impacted, hit hardest. So I think for many people, it became quite clear that equity is probably the conversation we want to have, but people didn't have access to that discourse. So in the UK, for many, many, many years, we've talked about the rhetoric of an equality of opportunity. So at the level of the law, everybody has equal access to services, representation, you name it. But if you then look at the outcomes, those outcomes don't seem to stack up to the equality opportunities landscape so what we've been trying to advance is well in order to get from equality to outcomes there's a thing called equity we want equitable outcomes and and it's that what we've been pushing you know equitable outcomes yes equality of opportunity but if you don't have equality of outcomes sorry it's not working what we're now seeing though is a bit of pushback in certain quarters from that focus on outcomes. So they want to go back to equality of opportunity, notions like fairness and meritocracy. Well, you know, it's a fair country. Uh, You all have the same opportunity. So therefore there must be something terribly wrong in individual families or individual communities that you must fix yourselves. We've heard these arguments with gender, haven't we? So rather than thinking about fixing impacted communities, we need to think about fixing the structure and the environment. So I think that, Discourse is happening, not happening fast enough. But what we have noticed is corporates, they, they really have started shifting their tone a bit because I think corporates on the whole were the most removed from that reality of racism. But then they something really important happened in the last 18 months that kind of like, you know, the, 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 the curtains kind of fell down. And I think they realized how much racism still exists. And what we now see is corporates scrambling to do the right thing scrambling to do the right thing now some of it started off with slogans some of it started off with rhetoric some of it was quite engaged actually so what we saw was a lot of staff and employees from companies so a lot of the initiatives that you see from the big companies didn't come from the very top by the way actually came from staff ordinary workers and employees who were saying oh my god um, I, I thought that this thing called racism was the thing that the KKK did. Turns out that it can happen in, in a living room where my children can access the TV. So I think that shifted. And so corporates are now looking, do something systemic. They need a lot of help. But I think there's there, there's a commitment there. They need a lot of help. And so we've we've been approached by a lot of corporates who have said, look, we want to do something systemic, but we don't know what it is and we need some help. Now that honesty is appreciated far more than slogans and one-off donations, which is just about this year. But to your point about leadership and what we need to see happen uh, inside firms, unless we see power invested with responsibility or representation with responsibility and agency, I think we're back to the drawing boards again around equality and representation senior leadership need to kind of take a handle of this and think right i want to see change happen in the next five years not in the next 50 years because if we just left it at the level of representation i think it's steady slow progress and what's really different this year unlike um, maybe many many years ago is that young people these days i mean then they're impatient i mean they want their rights right now and you know what? I love it. I absolutely love the fact that young people these days are on demand. They want it. Why should they not want democracy and rights and right now? So I think it's it's young people's attitudes that have shifted. It's, it's corporates that are wanting more. So I think there's a lot to play for. Um, there's a lot of a dance here as well in terms of like motivating corporates who want to do the right thing and getting them to do the right thing. But I would rather play that dance than give way to a growing right wing who really doesn't want to go to the ball at all right because they can see that some of these corporates or the ordinary person who's stuck in the middle kind of is uncomfortable with racism never wanted to do something before but right now they might want to do something i'm quite keen on saying okay let's talk about this whereas the right wing there is thinking oh my god for once anti-racists have a chance to kind of like really go into the heartlands, winning hearts and minds. And we must stop that. That's my worry. Like, how do you stabilize? How do you keep at bay the right wing, both in the U S and here?
5: Can I pick up on something that Halima said that I think is very valuable, which is, I mean, there's a lot of things that you said that are very valuable. One, one piece in particular is about how employees at many of the corporations really drove change. And I completely agree with that. So obviously, everyone knows that over this past two years, it's been incredibly hard on the Asian-American community, you know, with respect to the anti-Asian violence with the murder of six Asian-American women earlier this year in March. And we had the same thing happen to a certain extent, is that there are a lot of corporations came out to support the Asian-American community, sort of offer contributions or say, hey, what can we do to help? And some of it was, you would call it tokenism. Some of it was just, just sort of throwing dollars and then hoping it would go away. But where I thought it was most effective was when the corp- the C-suite said to their employees, hey, we don't know what to do here. We recognize there's a problem. You guys as employees that are from the Asian community help us figure this out, right? And it gave them a voice and they came up with much better solutions in some way. So part of this, right, is if corporations know when to sort of see the ground, if you will, Right, let their employees guide them and trust that their employees are looking out for all of their collective best interests, including the corporation's interests. It, it really does make a difference. Uh, there's two other points I, I, I would want to make about this. One is I think what all of you have been talking about with respect to, yeah, there's structures that can be changed, but then we have to look beyond them as well. I think that's important. There's there's an article that came out, I think it was in the Washington Post the last couple of days, that talked about how even for the free female Supreme Court justices, they are constantly interrupted more than the male Supreme Court justices. And not just by other justices, but that by the advocates, the lawyers themselves, the lawyers that are supposed to be ultra respectful of uh, the, the, the justices. So that tells you something, right? Is even at the most pinnacle of power, right? it can't be just the fact that they're there is not enough we need to ensure that their voices are heard and that is true at the supreme court that is true in c suite and boardrooms just having diversity as as you guys are saying for diversity sake is not enough if the other people don't recognize that the reason that they are there is that, that they need to have a voice i think the last piece i want to make sure we all think about is the role of truth in all of it and i hate that we have to say that but One of the fights that all of us need to engage in is against misinformation and disinformation. Let's be clear. There is a campaign out there that is trying to distort a lot of what is happening in society. And that is where, again, vulnerable communities are the most vulnerable. We see it in the coverage of George Floyd about how he was using drugs or something like that. We see it in the coverage of welfare and of some of the support systems like you know, the SNAP program or, or other things that help, these people are not working hard enough and that's why they're in these programs. We have to make sure we get the truth out there, right? And, and I, that's easy to say, it's hard to do, but I think, again, this is where we need to be systemic about it. Part of it is the responsibility of the platforms, if you will, the Facebooks, the Twitters. What are they doing to prevent false information from getting out there? Part of it is on all of us to make sure that we are contributing to getting the right information that is out there. And part of it is also incumbent on the government and the corporations to make sure that they stand up for truth, right? Too often we engage in this relativism that it's like, well, we don't want to, we want to protect free speech. This isn't the free speech we're talking about. You know, in 2020, like it or not, Joe Biden won the election. I mean, there's, there's no, well, on the other hand, about that, right? And so when when news platforms, give way to that and say, well, there's an argument being made. Yeah, there's an argument being made that the moon is made of cheese, but let's be serious, right? And and we should call that out, and people have to be willing to call that out. I think that's also the threat right now that all of us face. And again, it is most often borne by the most vulnerable communities, which include all of us in the communities of color.
7: I I love that that comment, um, John, and um, I would love to hear other people's thought uh, thoughts about sort of uh, the ways in which they think their respective organizations are really concerned with this 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 uh, this issue of truth, right, and knowledge production uh, in service of of more equitable or certainly at least less violent futures.
0: I feel like the tension that like I'm at least confronting and I I feel like Eric and I have been like in in my imagination, I am in a pretty uh, good conversation with you, Eric, about this issue where I believe that we actually need to name the enemies and the people who are actively targeting our communities, that there has to be a naming of the individuals, there has to be naming of the corporate leaders, There has to be a naming of the political, the people who we have elected to office who are actively either stoking fires that lead to deep, like the deepening of white supremacy, the calcifying of white supremacy in our political and economic institutions um, and or are profiting off of it. And that we need an actual like a regulatory regime. And I, um, one of the hard things for me is that I'm clear that there are two levels. Mary, you like keep on like intimating at this, right? That there's like a structural systemic level. And then there's the interpersonal level. And like, where do we need to meet people to bring them along in a journey? And I, the question that I am continually grappling with is like, how often do we need to concede? Like, The way that I imagine it in the worst case scenario is sitting across, needing to be in conversation um, with Steve Bannon, with with Steve Miller. Like, that's like the, that for me is like the, um, and needing to be in conversation in a way that actually creates the room and the aperture to to see his humanity, right? Like, that is the interpersonal uh, shifts that I feel like we often Um, default to of um, wanting to bring people along. And to be honest, like I don't buy it. Like I don't want, I don't want to do it. I don't want people in my organization to need to do it. I don't want my mom to need to do it. My cousin, my worst, my worst relative to need to do it. My worst enemy to need to do it. And, and I know it's work that needs to be done. And so I feel like the tension that's like Uh, merging for me in this conversation is that there is a structural and systemic that actually uh, lives in the realm of the culture norms rules of how we engage with each other setting the table for how we eat with each other and then there's like what we eat and like the interpersonal like what we talk about at the dinner table like the interpersonal things and I wonder like for my co-panelists like How do we engage with both of these seemingly different, but definitely intertwined challenges uh, in ways that are authentic and true? And frankly, in ways that don't require people of color to sacrifice themselves, because that's where it all like the leading edges is is like, you're kind of a jerk, Carmen, you know, not all white. The start for me is like, not all white people are bad. I'm like, clearly not all white people are bad, but white supremacy is that. Like we have to like we have to be able to walk into gum and name these things. And so Eric, I would just love to like be Eric, John and Alima, like how do we hold that there are people that we're talking about as good or like making a change who have like gotten rich off of advancing white supremacy white supremacist agendas or anti-black agendas or anti-asian agendas and anti-immigrant agendas and the need that we need more people. Like in order to have, like the democracy has to include all of us.
3: Eric, I think you're on mute. Uh, We can't hear you.
5: While we wait for Eric, well, one question I have for you, Carmen, is: Do we need to engage with the Stephen Millers and the Bandits of the world? At least for me, like I think I don't want to. And what I agree with you. I don't want to engage with them. But like I, can we just put them to the side and say these people we don't engage with, but the they are trying to influence. Those are the ones that we need to engage with, and they, that even there, it's very very hard work, right? Yeah,
0: I I don't know. I mean, I feel like. Um, we are in a moment where racial justice work is really bifurcated and it and it's not coming together in a way that, that feels, feels clear. clear. Oh, I'm, hearing, I'm, hearing. I'm hearing my part, so I'm not sure if that's me. I'm going to keep on talk. I'm good. Okay. And it feels bifurcated where I feel like it's an extreme, John, where we're like, um, we have to be able to be in conversation with the worst of us of us, of our people, of, of people here. And um, we need to do the work that you're going to do. But I also don't want to do that work. I'm just not going to lie. Like, I don't, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but I feel like it's work that we need to practice doing. Um,
4: and it's a challenge. It feels hard. Try this. Carmen, I'm going to pretend like everyone can hear me right now. I don't well, know yeah, if you we can really hear, you. hear me. We but, can um, I'm, I'm just going to speak for a second. Of course, I started to get lagged just as soon as you asked this amazing question. And um, I think this is like, this is one of those complicated questions. Here, here's, here's my quick take. Uh, I'm not interested in being in a room with with uh, Steve Bannon or, or, or Steve Miller, right? I, there, there's no value uh, 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 in it. Uh, not because I don't recognize the, their humanity, right, but that they have adopted such a different set of principles and ideology that I don't know what the common ground is that doesn't result, right, in the selling out of other marginalized communities, right? So there's, I don't understand how we could find uh, uh, that common ground. I do think, though, we should be contesting the institutions that they seek to govern, right, mm-hmm. to create, right, this exclusive form uh, of, of democracy. And the real question, you know, in the United States is, what do you do with the constituency that they primarily seek to recruit from, which is the, the, the white population in America? Do, do we ignore it, right? Or do we compete for that constituency? And if we compete for that constituency, How then do we do that in a way that I think is principled? And we wrestle with that, right? Western State Center, uh, uh, I think now in 2003, uh, uh, so nearly 20 years ago, we have released, we released one of the foundational toolkits and modules on addressing systemic racism, right? It helped to build much of of, uh, the conversation that happens today uh, around systemic racism. We continue that work, right, with our Northwest Equity Lab, which invests in uh, EDI, equity, diversity, uh, inclusion, uh, uh, key staff, right, in government and in in large institutions. And one of the pieces we've come to, I think, with supportive groups like Race Forward is, is to understand at the end of the day, for Western State Center at least, the path we've carved out is not the one of personal grievance, right? So we're not doing a lot of investment, uh, uh, because not because we think less of it, but we're not doing that investment in kind of the, inter, the individual development, right? The the personnel, the personal development uh that many do around EDI. At the end of the day, because of the external conditions, we've decided: look, uh whether people are prejudiced or not is less important than how our systems respond to that prejudice, right? And for our systems to offset, right, that socialization of prejudice, it means that the governance of that system needs to be uh, both diverse and present, right? But connected, right, to the actual uh, understanding of the systems of discrimination uh, that are played. I'm going to name some names. Right. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, some of this, because I think that work around systems change has created a different dialogue. And so has the tens of thousands of people who took to the streets. Right. In result of. Uh, of police killings. Now, look, I'm not a person who says, oh, that mobilization appeared out of nowhere. I'm I'm too old for that, right? I know that that was a result of generations of struggle and infrastructure building and expansions, not just of movements, right, but in the way that we have moved society to a point where more white Americans today, right, are supportive of Black Lives Matter than we're supportive of Martin Luther King. And I mean, by percentage, right? By percentage. More white people today support Black Lives Matters than ever supported Martin Luther King Jr. in his lifetime. That is the arc of change. And we know change is slow, but I'm an urgent kind of guy. And so I think we need to, to, to move this way. I think there's a real danger right now in not holding businesses to the moral principle of anti-racism. Let's be clear, right? Anti-racism is a value, not an ideology, right? That means racism is also a value. And when businesses promote and allow space for racism, they are practicing a value. When AT&T, yes, I named them, Gives money for the founding of One American News, right? One of the leading flagships for the alt right and white nationalist movement in this country, right? Movements that have engaged in violence that have taken more lives of Americans through ideological violence than any other social movement in this country, right? Over the last 10 years, we have a problem with corporate values. And and what they'll tell us is that this is all about profit. But we can't believe the lies, as John said, anymore. We know this is a not profit. Citibank, Citigroup itself released a study last year documenting that this country has lost more than $11 trillion in the last decade from discrimination just against the Black community. I'm not even talking about immigrants, Latinos, the Asian-American community, or Native Americans. This country has lost 11 million. And let's not be value neutral on that loss. That loss has mostly come on the backs, right, of African-Americans. And those who have gained from it have been primarily white. And so I do think where we are in agreement, right, is the idea that personal grievance is less important than building the governance structures necessary to engage systems And the question of white constituencies is a complicated one. I think it's set by time and place in this country. I think it's set by the organization and its mission statement. But I do believe this, where I push back against the idea that we simply need to go out and have dialogues with uh, white communities is this. It is always proposition on the idea that we need to kind of lower, right, Uh, our expectations and engage the white constituency around a plethora of other issues, right? Everything but the conversation around race. At Western State Center, the the difference for us is we actually believe white people have a self-interest in opposing racism in this society, systemic racism, not an allyship role, right? Not a supporter role. They have a direct self-interest. And when white people identify and white institutions identify Uh, uh, that self-interest. They begin the process of systemic uh, 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 transformation. And hopefully, personal growth comes with that. But I didn't come into this work, right, to be a personal counselor, right, or to be someone's professional development person. I came in to open up the space, right, for liberation and opportunity for communities who have been denied that too far in a society that claims to be a democracy. So I think we we, we agree. And there are real questions uh, around how we engage white constituencies. That was very long, but since I lost my headphones, I went on. Thank you.
7: No, thank you so much for that. And I think, um, Halima, did you have something to say about this as well?
6: Yeah, I mean, it was, well, I think I've moved on from that point, but I will say anyway, um, I don't, I, I think, um, Was it, John, you said, I don't want to be in a room with Steve Bannon. I'm quite clear about that. I know lots of other people I don't want to be in a room with. Um, The reason for that is that for me to be engaged in a room with the the other side, we have to commit to some principles of no harm. If I feel that my interests are harmed there, I will not get into a room with them. So don't ask me to self-harm myself. I won't do it. What I am interested in is, though, the people and the communities that his followers are targeting. And i tell you why I'm interested in them, because the story of racism is not complete, sorry, the story of anti-racism is not complete until it becomes a story of us. If we only worked with our supporters and followers, then I think it's a story about them. When it's a story about us and our society, that includes uh, our, our white friends and allies, and indeed our white friends who might have a self-interest as well. So that's why I'm quite keen on working there. But but like you, Eric, I, I don't think that conversation should be about individually converting somebody's views as though we all live in a liberal democracy and they want to espouse hate. You know, that's that's not what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in making sure that that hate doesn't ever touch large numbers of people from my communities. That means building the power, the resources, and everything within our structures to make sure that the harm is mitigated. So I I don't mind the individual racist or the bad apple here and there what I mind is whether their views has cultural norm normalcy is institutionalized because that has devastating consequences on our children and our children's children and that's the structure piece I think I think that is about empathy isn't it ultimately we care about a, a legacy we leave behind for our children so they never go through what we had to go through but that does mean working with white society as well but not the Steve Bannons and their
7: likes. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing from you all is this really important distinction being made between sort of individual sort of prejudice, right? And, and, and racism as being prejudice plus power, right? Um, that ability to to sort of actually shape uh, our lives uh, to do harm. Um, so i'm gonna switch over really quickly um we have quite a few questions from um, the audience uh, and only about 10 minutes um so i'm I, I i'm going to start with one question um from from someone who's registered for the conference um and they write um they're particularly interested uh, in hearing about uh communities that have established systems of public accountability particularly as that, accountability relates to spending and contracts uh, in construction and infrastructure projects. Um, And and here they're thinking about diverse hiring and spending. Uh, They say moreover, I'm very interested in learning about how local communities have leveraged uh, respective public, private and philanthropic relationships or partnerships to establish ongoing systems of transparency and accountability to benefit local businesses um, that are legitimately owned by people of color. So I, I,
5: yeah, I think that, oh, somebody has something to say? Uh, let me start perhaps. I, so I serve on the diversity council of a, a number of corporations. And so we get into these discussions about supplier diversity and sort of, sort of who who corporations are contracting with. I guess there's a couple of things that come out to me as best practices, maybe, if that's sort of where we're, this question is going. Number one, I would say is public transparency. I find the corporations that are willing to open up their books, so to speak, and take those hard questions are corporations that are more likely to change and be willing to listen. The ones that are a little bit more closed or a little bit more defensive about the fact that, well, this data we're not sure, but, you know, we have different flaws in our data, so we we don't we want to iron it out before uh, we reveal to everyone. I, those are the ones that are resistant to change. Uh, but then it gets to, I think a number of people have talked about this also is it gets further than that is also, because like when you talk about minority owned businesses, for example, there are too often that sort of you could find uh, sort of a, a minority that owns a business, but really, you know, if you look beneath the surface, it, it, it goes to this tokenism idea, right? So a part of this is making sure that so sort if of those numbers actually back up sort of what they, what a corporation is trying to uh, project, right? Because, you know, I, for example, uh, and I don't need to, to name the company. I had a company that was looking at their supplier diversity. They said they had a huge amount of Asian diversity. I asked them about it. It turns out they were from Asia, literally from Asia, right? So, okay, yes, you have supplier diversity because you have a lot of manufacturing coming from Asia. That's not diversity, you know, at least the way I would define it. So, again so we got to kick the tires we got to ask the hard questions uh if, if we are really trying to assess it
0: yeah I like from a community perspective there's an amazing leader here in seattle named nikita oliver who runs an organization called creative justice that's been doing a ton of work looking at how public dollars are spent in service of a whole host of things so like we all know Um, We are in the midst of what could quite possibly be the largest public investment in U.S. history in people. And so I know there are community organizations across the country um, who are actually working with local residents to make sure that, like, the money is understood as like a collective investment in us, a collective investment in our institutions, a collective investment into our future. And so I'll just like name as like a for practice, practical uh, uh, intents. I think that there are a number of local community-based organizations um, that are making sure that people who have long been excluded from the conversations about how we spend our money are front and center uh, at informing the agenda of public dollars and public spending. Thank you. Oh,
7: someone Thank you so much for giving that really clear example uh, of someone that we might look to, particularly for uh, sort of community pressure um, in making sure that uh, that 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 uh, communities are actually seeing these benefits. Um, And thank you so much, John, for really kind of highlighting the best practices for uh, private industry in terms of actually, like you said, opening their books. (laughs) Um, The second question that I have uh, from the audience is uh, uh, someone writes, time is in the title, Uh, how do you feel like time functions and racial justice organizing and institutional transformation uh, and are white people patient enough to engage in the long haul?
4: No, no. uh, Sorry, white folks. And this is not, uh, uh, it's, it's because of privilege in society, right? It's, it's not because of whiteness. Uh, uh, Males Uh, in society for the most part also have this problem, right? Where uh, uh, we're urgent uh, with all the wrong things, right? And uh, not only urgent with many of the wrong things, uh, uh, but when it meets up against our privilege, when we realize that racism, systemic racism is actually uh, more powerful than even uh, an individual's white privilege, it creates a discombobulation uh, uh, that uh, is hard for white folks to, to, to understand. Uh, I think it's 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 for white leadership to to understand, right, that this is not a a fight that started uh, it's gonna sound contradictory, but I promise it's not when we're done. We have to understand, right? It, it, you know, if you are a white person dealing with racism right, if you are a man dealing with sexism and uh, uh, issues of of, uh, gender discrimination in society, right, sis, you you have to understand that the arcs of those struggles are much longer than you realize, right, and and can hold, right, and so uh, many of us have been watching these struggles through generations, uh, and there has been great progress, right, not where we want to be, right, but there has been progress. And the other piece, though, is that that is not an excuse to not be uh, 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 serious and disciplined about this, right? Often what happens is when people get frustrated, uh, 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 they quit or they leave, which is also a privilege, right? Most people of color don't get that choice uh, uh, to leave. This is their reality day in and, and day out. On the other hand, right? We have to understand, uh, we have to stop this idea that solving racism is super complicated. It's not that complicated. It just takes public will, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we need to to do a better job, all right, of white folks not feeling that understanding racism is now like a new kind of uh, association that a popular association that you get to belong to that other white folks don't get to belong to or have to go through these rituals uh, uh, to belong to it. And that has been one of the problems with EDI, right? One of the bad outcomes over the 10 years, right? Is that it's become much more of a social club, right? Than a set of tools to address systemic change. That's why there's this overemphasis on personal development, right? White people who have entered this movement have uh, profited, have become substantially better right, at their jobs, right? but the conditions haven't changed for people of color. And that's because white folks are not opening up enough space to bring in other white folks uh, uh, into this work. So yes, uh, uh, folks are impatient, uh, 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 but around all the, ro- all the wrong things. This is a long arc struggle, but we need more folks and you need to stop telling other white people that this is super complicated to solve. You're not helping us.
7: Sort of other, any other thoughts on on um, you know? Think I'm hearing from Eric the this this notion of uh, population and it also sounds like um, what do they call it? Ally fatigue. <laughs> Uh, which is kind of a it, it's an interesting it's an interesting turn of phrase um, um but yeah so I, I anybody else sort of thinking about uh this idea or that the you know that this issue of time right um uh and how how might you address it in your own practice and your own uh organizations right um the fact that um immediate change, Very rarely happens. Um, You know, there there may be a working towards a particular campaign and there can be victories, but we know more often than not, uh, those are long and hard battles. I feel
0: like Angela Davis wrote the book, right? Freedom is a constant struggle. And Mm -hmm. as we work in the fight for freedom, um, there are always going to be oppositional forces. And I feel like our orientation needs to change away from um, sort of like short term small victories and gains, and towards starting to see the ground for the world and country that we know is possible. And that's going to always take like, it's like a garden. It's always going to take work. And I feel like our our sector, our movements are, frankly, because of how philanthropy has been structured and organized, is only incentivized to have like material real gains not to sustain those gains, not to realize those gains, and not to actually expand those gains or um, to build on those gains in service of this future world. So like, for me, time, um, time talking about time creates a, ta- a trap around legacy and personal mm. contribution and attribution for victory. And it makes it seem like one person did one thing and that led to all of these other things. And we just know, you know, historically that that's just not true, that every great movement leader that everybody always lifts up was always tethered to a broader community of people, both in the past and into the future, that were able to keep their victories alive. And that for me is like the key of movement work is that it's like not tethered to uh, a destination, but we need to have greater discipline about the constant nature of the struggle for freedom.
7: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Halima, I think I saw your hand as well.
6: Yeah, no, I, w- I was just um in a conversation yesterday about actually the-, the timing issue. And obviously everybody around the room said, well, we've been on this movement piece for a really, really long time. So the question of timing is whose timing And the consensus was that what's particularly timely now is that the movement is being met by the other side because the movement always existed, but it just wasn't getting that traction from uh, wider uh, sections and demographics in society. So given the fact that 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 fusion, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Not fusion, That, that contact point has happened. I think there's a lot that can be gained from that contact point that we might not gain in other periods when the movement is perhaps feeling slow and cumbersome. What we say to a lot of our friends is that that opportunity, that window, that portal isn't going to stay open, right, forever. What is it that we must do now to crowdsource in the assets, the power, the networks, so that we can keep that portal open for longer. Because if we just relied on other people's uh, preferences, timings, they might just move on to saving the planet. They should do, by the way, we should all be saving the planet you see what i mean so our responsibility is to make sure that people don't wane people don't lose interest because for sure they will as human beings we tend to be a little bit apathetic and possibly a bit lazy but our role is to make sure that that door that portal stays open as long as possible And that's partly the work. This is is what I see in race equity organisations now. We've existed since 1968. We've always done this work, but there's something very particular at this moment where I feel, well, you know, if there are corporates scrambling, wanting to do the right thing, um, it's never gonna happen again if we don't kind of ride on this, like make that space bigger than it already was. So I think it's on us to kind of make sure that the time People just don't lose interest. We've just got to work harder, right?
7: Well, uh, unfortunately, thank you so much uh, with that, that that closing idea, right? That we just have to work harder. And also, as Carmen was saying, that uh, that, that practice of working towards freedom, it's a constant struggle, uh, to paraphrase. Uh, Dr. Davis, uh, unfortunately, we are all out of time, um, but thank you all so much for being in conversation today. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I, I, hope that all of our, our many, our many participants and audience
1: members do as well. Untying Knots is hosted by Nikhil Raghavira and Eric Collect. It is a podcast of the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project and the Harvard Kennedy School's Ash Center, as well as a collaboration with the Atlantic Council Geotech Center. We'd like to thank the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for supporting our convening, as well as our speakers, Carmen, John, Halima, Eric, as well as Mary for moderating.
2: And we have one final special episode coming out from the Truth and Transformation Conference, a fireside chat between Erica and Dr. Khalil Jabran Mohammed, IRA's director, which I'm particularly excited about. So definitely come back for this must listen episode. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Music is Beauty Flow by Kevin McCloy.